Welcome and thanks for listening to the Spirit of Time podcast. It's a spirited discussion of watch topics and some of the cool bon vivant stuff that overlaps our hobby, especially fine spirits, craft beer, cocktails, and wine. In other words, if it's boozy, smoky, sudsy, or smooth, we'll probably talk about it. Think of it as a watch-focused happy hour for your commute. We are your hosts. I am Matt. I'm Greg. Thanks for listening and enjoy the episode. everybody welcome again to the spirit of time podcast i am flying solo today greg was not able to make it last minute he's kind of heavily programmed but that happens no big deal because in his place i have the ultimate wingman literally i'm joined by colonel richard nemo sweeten formerly of bremont's military projects unit and longtime pilot in the united states air force flying the mighty eagle nemo welcome how are you man I'm doing well, Matt. Thanks a lot for having me. I'm very excited to uh, talk about uh, all things flying, watches, guy stuff, you name it. Oh, 100%. Well, you know, for people who don't know who you are, um, you are like a, an archetypical watch dude. Uh, you know, pilot, former military guy, watch guy. You've got the Porsche, I believe, right? Am I, am I right there? Am I remembering that correctly? It's, it's the poor man's Porsche. It's a 72 914. So uh, yeah, it's a lover, not a fighter for sure. Well, th- that's there's the poor man's Porsche and there's the cool man's Porsche. And that's, I think, maybe the cool man's Porsche. We joke around on this podcast a lot that there's like the watch dilettante starter kit. Uh-huh. And it's it's the air-cooled 911. Uh-huh. The 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 vintage, you know, uh, either GMT or Submariner, preferably the Submariner. Sure. And you have to like you have to shoot an old vintage Leica camera, and uh, yeah, stuff stuff like that. So if you're two out of three, you're good to go. <laughs> That's good. So where are you joining us from? Uh, I'm in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Uh, we moved back here about five years ago. I spent about 16 years in Massachusetts. I flew for the Massachusetts Air National Guard, uh, which I could tell you more about. That was a fun job. So yeah, so back here in Colorado, loving life and flying for United currently. Awesome. Well, hey, we have a tradition on this podcast with all of our guests. We do a wrist check and a pour check. Can you tell me what is on the wrist for you tonight? What watch do you have? Well, kind of in honor of Bremont, I'm wearing my 2007 Bremont Alt 1Z. There's a good story behind the watch, but uh, one of the first, I got number 88, which was my academy class. And uh, 
And then the Alt 1Z obviously was one of uh, Bremont's kind of staple watches, the Z, the C, and the um, Alt 1P. Those were the first watches they had. So yeah, so and then, dude, it's been with me for 10 years. It's never been in for service, still keeps perfect time. So it's been a great watch. Oh, that's fantastic. I um, I think that was probably one of the first watches I ever saw. And believe it or not, one of the, uh, the is it the EP120? Uh, yeah, actually, that was their first. That was their very first special project. That yeah, that was in a uh, a glass case at a Torno in Southern California when I went looking for a um, another like a, either a Breitling or a Bell and Ross. I wanted mm-hmm. something kind of aviation related, and um, there was this kind of you know skinny like shabby chic British guy that was visiting the AD there, and he started talking to me, and it was Nick. This was back when, you know, he was the, the guy in North America. Yep, yep. And, you know, I, I mean, and you know how he is. He's such an amazing ambassador for that he brand. Is, yeah. We we talked airplanes for an hour, watches for five minutes, but they they had an EP120 and I wish I'd bought it in, yeah. in retrospect. Oh, how stupid. It'd be worth a lot of money now for sure. Yep, yep. Well, what have you got in the glass? I'm just with my staple with a rum and dine Coke with a uh, slice of lime. So I'm a pretty uh, easy guy. Oh, that's perfect. Actually, I have a uh, a rum drink too. We'll get to that in a second. That's uh that is a pretty amazing combo. I personally have um so I tried to find it's actually it's in my safe and I just didn't have time to run out and get it. Uh but I've got a in in honor of a mutual connection Mike Pearson, I've got an oddball error dialed Zodiac uh, world timer. Uh-huh. I it's, think it's I saw it on Instagram from you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's um not error dial, but it's got the error bezel, you know, where the word Singapore is misspelled like poor, you know. <laughs> okay. um, yeah, yeah. So I had to get it as a as a cocktail. One of my favorite drinks is a Singapore slings. I had to get that watch when I found it. Oh, that's fine. Yeah, yeah. So I could not find that. So instead, uh I have one of my stalwarts. This is the uh the Blanc Pond 50 Fathoms Bathyscaphe. This is just the plain Jane diver but i've got it on a uh kind of a, a brown crocodile leather to kind of dress it up a little bit i had it on there for the holiday and just left it on and that's a to me that's a, a great watch and it's sized very much like dimensionally it's almost identical to an mb2 yeah no yeah, yeah 50 a, fathoms is kind of a grail watch i don't think i can afford one i need to make more money to go buy a 50 fathoms. Well, you, you know what they're definitely more expensive now um and of course, this is again the the Bathyscaphe is a little bit easier on the wallet than the uh, the regular Fifty Fathoms Automatique, which yeah. is you know a little bit fluffier. I'm kind of a skinny dude, you know. I've got like a six point six, six point seven max is my wrist size, right. and uh, you know the bigger watch is just is a little harder to pull off. This is a little more svelte, so it's cool. So that's what's on the wrist and in the Excellent. glass. I've been on like a. a a tiki island, uh, you know, kind of tropical exotic drink kick for probably a year. And this is something called an island hopper. This is basically a, uh, a ginger beer and, um, pineapple juice backbone, a little bit of fresh lime, some white rum. Yeah. And a little float of, uh, of spiced rum. This is a, uh, Koloa spiced rum. Yeah. Just, uh, fun. And it's not super cold here. So, you know, I'm out in my garage right now. I've got like a, a fleece on. I can probably drink stuff like this year round. I'm pretty fortunate. Excellent. Excellent. So that's what's in the glass. Um, 
we're going to have a pretty good discussion, but do you mind if we kind of warm up the, uh, the old, you know, noggin here with a few, you know, this or that rapid fire type questions? Absolutely. Fire away. Okay. We'll call this the, uh, the, the G warm for the, for the sake of this discussion. What is your favorite aviation oriented film? Favorite aviation oriented film. Well, it's funny you say that because the Air Force never has good movies, right? Iron right. Eagle, right? Oh my God. <laughs> the Navy, but the Navy has great movies. I, dude, I tell you what, uh, Top Gun Maverick surprised me at how much I enjoyed that movie. I've seen it a few times. And there's actually a really good Bremont story to go along with that with Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise is a Bremont guy, He's, he owns quite a few Bremonts. Yep. Uh, and Nick knows Tom. Uh, and I can tell you that story now or later, but I would probably go with Top Gun Maverick. I was amazed what a great film that was. I think that's a, an acceptable answer for sure. It, you know what? It really was a uh, kind of the perfect, really, really long way around the circle way to end that story. Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't know how they were going to pull it off because it'd been 30 years. So how was he even still doing anything if he wasn't an admiral? But they found a way to pull it off. Yeah, they kind of, I think they must have played with the dates. Like if you pretend that the first movie was maybe three or four years in the future from when it really, yeah. I don't know, it works. Okay, next question. For a pilot watch, quartz or mechanical? Uh, well, mechanical for sure. I'm a, I'm just a mechanical guy. I, th- I used to say with Bremont when I talked to pilots, I say, hey, you fly these big mechanical machines. Um, why are you wearing a little battery powered? quartz watch you know a lot of pilots wear brightlands aerospace or emergency or some of the different uh, the b2 there's some different uh quartz watches that brightling uh, like like to provide pilots and i would always say and nothing against brightling man i love brightling they have earned their place in uh, watch aviation uh history if you will but i'd say you're just wearing a a Casio and a really nice titanium case, you know, and, uh, nothing again, nothing against Freightlings quartz watches. I've got a few with a F 15 and patches and stuff on it, but I am a mechanical watch guy. You know, when you're telling stories in the bar and your sleeves are rolled up, there should be a big mechanical watch on the wrist for sure. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. Okay. Speed or stealth? Oh, speed. Yeah, most definitely. I flew Eagles, so we had no stealth whatsoever. So in fact, we were, we were, we'd show up, you know, we were the flying tennis court. So whether it was, you'd see us visually at 20 miles out or pick us up on radar, there was no stealth involved with the Eagle whatsoever. Yeah. Hey, you know what you mentioned? I'm sorry. I'm going to de- derail us and we'll probably do this a few times. Do you know that guy? Um, is it Spider-Man? Uh, Spider-Man was with St. Louis. He was a, uh, yeah, he's he in 06. I'm not sure where Spider-Man is now. Long, long time guard, but that was the first time I ever heard anybody refer to the F-15 as the tennis court. And ever, <laughs> ever since I've, I've heard it. Okay. Uh, I digress. Uh, what, first of all, what airline or what jet are you flying for your airline? I'm flying the Airbus, the A320. Okay. So here's the question. What is your favorite airline trip for that jet? You know, the Airbus, we're picking up a lot of the stuff the regional jets used to do. So we go into a lot of small airports, the 737 and bigger, go into the more major airports. We still go into the big hub, Chicago, Atlanta, San Francisco, you name it. But we'll go into places like Sioux Falls or Bozeman, Durango, Colorado. I love the flying where it's more seat of the pants. It's not super controlled. It's, hey report a visual, you know, and that, and that's it. You just fly the airplane to get there and to land. So I would say as an Airbus guy, uh, flying some of the shorter trips for United, it's some of those smaller airports that are really the most fun in my opinion. 
yeah, you you hear all the the visual controlling. Follow the Lear fifty five for short final or something. Oh like yeah, that. like going in, going into Chicago, you are literally a radio controlled airplane. Fly this speed, fly this heading. Now fly this speed, and you just like this is this is not even flying. I'm just dialing in speeds as they tell me what to do. So yeah, I, I prefer that. And occasionally we'll, we'll even take the Airbus into fields that don't have a tower. So you're calling center from the ground and you're watching little bug smashers tool around as you're trying to, to make your way out and take off. So that's, that's the fun flying. That's unfathomable to me. That's fantastic. Okay. Uh, after the debrief, back in the military days, after the debrief, squadron bar, you want a cold beer or Jeremiah weed? Uh, Jeremiah weed's good for a shot. Uh, I wouldn't know. I don't think anybody drinks Jeremiah weed as their, as their uh, uh, drink of choice, uh, but that was the Eagle driver drink for sure. So we would do shots of Jeremiah weed, tell stories. Um, if you mess something up or you got in trouble, you'd do a shot of Jeremiah weed, but probably everybody was drinking a big mug of beer as their, uh, as their go-to drink in the bar. So yeah, a little both, I guess. Makes sense. Makes sense. Okay. Last one. All right. This is from the gut. Jolly or Sandy? Jolly or Sandy? Man, it, it, I'm not even sure I know what the reference is referring to. Oh, so, uh, so when I, you know, um, in the search and rescue world. Okay, we're talking helos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, the Jolly, you know, the uh, the 53s or 60s, yeah, yeah. you know, the guys the guys that would actually pick you up physically. Yeah, or the, yeah, yeah. The, or Sandy, the, the A-10s who would shoot cover for you. Wow. I guess I was just Jolly. supposed to be like an emotional reaction. Yeah, um, I, I would guess Jolly. I want the guys who are going to pick me up if I ended up on the ground. So that's the first thing I think of. Right on, right on. We had, as an aside, my um, that's always near and dear to my heart. My, uh, I mentioned prior to us starting to record, I was at Debt 2-5 at Arizona State. And the, yeah. the guy who was in charge of that program was uh, Colonel Larry Kerrigan. Uh-huh. And he was uh, six years in the Hilton you know, with oh, people wow. like John McCain and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I can't even imagine that. That's yeah. Yeah. That's, that was, that was basically his, uh, you know, his final, final job in the air force. Right on. Well, Hey, on that happy note, let's, let's, uh, talk about something a little cooler about the life of Nemo. What is your background? Like, where are you from? Where'd you grow up? Your education, all that stuff. Uh, California kid, central California in a little town called Hollister. Um, I, uh, yeah, I got, Decent grades. I applied to the Air Force Academy. I kind of wanted to play football. Uh, I ended up not playing football, but I got accepted to the academy. And I thought, well, I, I, I can go to the academy, quit, and still go to college kind of anywhere else. But I can't turn down the academy and then change my mind and go later. So I took the, took the appointment. And four years later, I'd been brainwashed into pilot training and all the other stuff they expect from us. So graduated from the academy. And I uh, went to pilot training at Williams Air Force Base, Arizona in 1988. And that's where the pilot uh, training in my career began. Cool, cool. Did you, um, was were you a first assignment instructor pilot? I was. I flew the T-37 Tweet, which has been replaced now by the T-6, which has it's been a long time replaced by the T-6 now. So yeah, I flew the, flew the Tweet. Um, I was not happy. I wanted an F-15 to Alaska. That was my first choice. Assignment night, I still vividly remember as I drank my sorrows away after I'd found out I'd been given a T-37 Tweet. But um, I joke the T-37 is kind of like driving a VW Bug. 
you know, you, you don't want your friends to see you and it's nothing special, <laughs> but, but it's, it's actually pretty fun to drive that little thing around. So flying tweets was kind of the same thing. We'd go to a lot, a lot of smaller fields. Instructing was a lot of fun. Uh, so yeah, and I was newly married. So I think it was good for my wife, Angela, t- to not have me flying fighters as a young lieutenant being gone. So uh, things kind of work out for a reason. So yeah, I started out as a tweet IP. Gotcha. So just to clarify, and I, I, I think you basically told me this without me asking, but um, UPT for you, undergraduate pilot training for uh-huh. um, you know people who aren't aware, that's basically your your first big long step in pilot training. That Correct. was at Williams. Yes, flew the T thirty seven. Then we transitioned to the T thirty eight Talon, and then you'd graduate assignment night and find out what you were doing. Okay, got forward. it, got it, got it. So everything basically was Arizona. Uh, yes, for pilot training. Yeah, certainly. And then I stayed there at Willie as an instructor until 92. Williams Air Force Base closed down. The tweets were done. And uh, now I think it's called Phoenix Gateway or something. The runway is still there, but all the squadrons and stuff are long gone. Our detachment would do our um, our dining. I don't know what we, I don't remember if we call it dining in or dining out, but uh, at the Oak Club there. Yeah, yeah. That was a good was, place. That was, yeah, a cool little spot. Um, what's, so you, then after UPT, you're a FAPE first assignment instruction. Yeah. First assignment instructor pilot. That's right. Then from there you get the mighty Eagle. No, actually this oh. was like ni- 1992, 93. We were kind of chatting before we started. That's yeah, not when a pilot, good time. Yeah. Pilot training shrunk down. There were no fighter assignments available. Even the guys that were at Shepard, Euronado, uh, where everybody gets fighters, they were getting heavies or getting banked. It was not a good time. So I went, I like to say went and hid at the air force Academy. I taught cadets to fly the T 41 Mescalero, which was just a military Cessna 172. And then we brought on a little airplane called the Slingsby T three, which I flew for a little while. And then I got my F 15 assignment in 1995. So I was kind of what, some people called a super fape. I flew as an instructor for a good solid four or five years before I got an operational assignment. Okay. Good, good. Well, I mean, that's a, a lot of time in different aircraft and I mean, nothing hurts. The T-41. Okay. So my squadron in Civil Air Patrol, we had a T-41. Yeah, we yeah, had a 206, sure. a stationary. That two, the T-41 was great. Um, ours had a stole kit on it. I think they probably all do. Uh, and you know, it's just very, very, very forgiving at low speed. So very cool. Yeah, no, it was a great airplane. It was, it was uh, a challenge to go from flying VFR at, you know, 120, 130 knots straight to the Eagle. So that was, I was hanging on by the tails of the Eagle for a while, but I, I did make it through. Yeah. When your approach speed has two digits. Um, <laughs> so then you go to the Eagle, where is, where are you assigned? Like what squadron first? Uh, I went through training at Tyndall, uh, and they did warm me up a little bit. I got some T-38 flights. I went through fighter lead-in in the AT-38 at Columbus Air Force Base. So it's not like I just went from a, a Cessna straight into the cockpit of the F-15. So they sped me up a little bit. I went to training at Tyndall Air Force Base in Panama City, Florida. And from there, I got an assignment to Alaska, 19th Fighter Squadron there at Elmendorf in Alaska. So I finally got, that's the assignment I wanted out of pilot training, and it took me about five years to get there. but. I did make it happen. And flying in Alaska was phenomenal, as you can imagine. Yeah, I've seen the videos of, uh, I don't know who's based up there now. I think it's F-22s. And I think there was Uh, maybe a a Korea squadron or maybe one of the Japan squadrons that did some kind of a a great, you know, uh, video a few years ago, the the Fiends. Yeah, I'm not sure. It's it's F-22s. I think some Strike Eagles are still up there. Yeah, yeah. 
I can imagine though. It's very, very good, like cold, dense air. Oh, and supersonic sure. over, over land, which is something you don't see too much anymore. That's cool. So you get, you basically, you get a bear killer assignment after the cold war ends, which is a bummer, but the, uh, the uh, flying must've been amazing. Oh, it was. Yeah, absolutely amazing. So from Alaska, where do you go? Uh, from there, because I was a fate, Tyndall Air Force Base as an instructor was was kind of in the programming for me. I, I did not want to go to weapons school. I was already a captain. Um, and the Eagle community is a, is a tough community. It, it, they eat their own. And uh, coming in as an old fate was not always that easy. But I, I did, you know, stick it out. And, and I like to say I was an average Eagle driver and damn proud of it, right? Because there were, there were some guys who were just naturally gifted in that airplane. And I got pretty good at it with time. But I did go down to, uh, from Alaska to Tyndall, Panama City, Florida, and I was an F-15C uh, instructor uh, in the first fighter squadron for about three, three and a half years. Got well, First fighter squadron, uh, well, you know what? Never mind. Forget it. I'm thinking of first fighter wing. Um, yeah, yeah, not finally. Yeah, just squad. Got it, got it. Um, any combat deployments in the Eagle? Yeah, when we were the first Alaska squadron to go over and do Southern Watch, remember back in the days of the yep. uh, Iraq and the no flying south of the 33rd parallel or whatever it was. So we did some flying there. I was there for a month and a half, two months living in a tent. Uh, the flying was actually pretty boring because Iraq didn't have a lot going on. The the kind of cool story about what we did is the U-2, this was in 98, the U-2 was flying missions right up to Baghdad. And Saddam Hussein was saying he was going to shoot the U-2 down. And it was in national news. My wife remembers, I remember her telling me, watching this story on the news. And they had MiG-25 Foxbats, which technically could take off on, on a supersonic climb profile, could get high enough and close enough to technically shoot down the U-2. So we would fly four-ship um, uh, caps underneath the U-2. So he's up there at you know 70,000-plus feet, and we'd be underneath counter rotating kind of in a zigzag cap to flow underneath him watching for MiG 25s that might take off. And of course nothing ever happened and we'd go back and land. And uh, so overall it was fairly uneventful, but that's my only combat time. If you want to call it that the C model Eagle has not done a lot of work and has had no reason to for, for many years. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, considering what an, an amazing you know, aircraft that is right. There's just not a lot of opportunity for it to be employed. Nobody comes up against it. Yeah. Nobody had an air threat that, that, you know, ever really came close to the Eagle. I think Kosovo, we had a dozer shower, an old friend of mine shot down some, uh, a MiG-29. And I think that might be the last time an Eagle had a kill one of ours. Yeah. Yeah. Was that the dude who got, um, who got two MiGs in, uh, in the first Iraq war in 91? No, that's going back way further. My wing commander at Otis, Kimo Skiavi, was one of those guys that had a MiG kill. But we had a four ship that shot down a few. I don't remember what they were, MiG-23s or something. Gotcha. Right on. Um, I'm For whatever reason, I, I can't remember half of the things you know that I need to remember. But these weird little tidbits kind of flow across the transom. You might, you might be there. thinking of uh, uh, Caesar. 100%. Hispanic yeah, guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, he had two kills. Yeah, I've run into him over the years. He's got a Bremont, I believe. Okay. Well, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. So what do you do now? What do you do for fun? What are uh what is the job and all that? Uh well, uh I retired um in uh 
January of 2014, uh, goofed around flying Civil Air Patrol, like you said you you were doing there for a while. I went and flew for a company called Draken. I flew as a civilian fighter pilot at Nellis. Did that for a couple of years, and then United, all the airlines were hiring like crazy. Like, oh my God, pilot shortages, you know, what are we going to do? <laughs> I decided to call some old buddies at United and talk to my wife, and because I swore I'd never be an airline pilot. I would never do it. And uh, buddies of mine said, yeah, dude, if you want to be an airline pilot, you need to do it right now. So I uh, got hired by United pretty quickly, got on the Airbus, uh, very quickly got hired into the training center in Denver. Uh, so I only spent about eight months on the line as a line A through 20 pilot. And now I sit in simulators most of the time and teach uh, teach new trainees or put captains and FOs through, um, you know, recurrency training. And uh, yeah, that's kind of kind of what I'm doing. Well, that's cool stuff, man. Do you, do you owe that? Do you think to your, what I think for most people, if they're not familiar, you know, people listening, if you had time as a FAPE and then as a, you know, an instructor at Tyndall on the F-15, I mean, that's, that's a fair amount of time. And at, in, at the Academy, that's a lot of time teaching people how to fly. Was that part of your record instrumental in, in getting the gig that you have now? Yeah, hugely. I like to say I looked good on paper to United. So yeah, I'm sure they look back at my career. I was the chief academics at Tyndall and I've been through Air Force Platform Instructor School. So um, when I was in my interview uh, to be an instructor on the Airbus, they said at the end, hey, you got any questions for us? And I'm like, yeah, you sure you want me to be an Airbus instructor? Because I do not know that airplane very well. And I was used to the military, right? You weren't an instructor in the military until you knew your airplane inside and out. And they said, oh, yeah, don't worry. We'll teach you everything you need to know. And I'm like, I don't have any street cred in this airplane at all. So uh, so sometimes when I'm teaching, there's some imposter syndrome going on. You know, I'm thinking I, I'm standing up here teaching a, an Airbus captain with 20,000 hours in the airplane. Uh, so I feel like I got to be on my A game all the time. But it, it's a good job. And, and most of the captains I, I talk to with a lot of time understand how I got there and uh, give me a break when I don't necessarily know as much as they do. No, that's all good. That's very cool. Well, so that's kind of the the airline and airplane, or I should say the Air Force part of this. But I mean, we're a watch podcast. So how did you get into watches? Like what was your what was your first watch? Do you do you remember? Kind of my, my first watch, my dad got me a, a Seiko uh sports a sports one hundred, I think it is. It's one of the most robust quartz movements ever made. It's a seven A 28 movement i think just a beast you open the thing up and it's not like a teeny quartz movement surrounded by a plastic you know case it's it's all quartz movement in that entire watch and it's a pretty big watch and uh he had it engraved on the back you you know you saw air force academy 1988 so i wore that watch for for years didn't really know the difference between a quartz watch and a mechanical watch and uh and then of course flying for the air force it was usually a g-shock that was kind of the the standard uh issue watch and then at my 10-year anniversary my wife got me a a tag heuer sel automatic and you know i'm holding this watch like an idiot going well you know i have to wind it up you know how old-fashioned is this thing and that watch kind of put me on the track of appreciating mechanical watches so that was my first mechanical watch and then from there as your listeners and you know once the watch bug bites you now you're just you're off on a wild roller coaster ride with what watch you want next and what watch you know speaks to you and that kind of thing so from that point on the collection just started kind of growing and growing 
Yeah, no, I think that's how it is for all of us. And do you remember what year that was that the Tag Heuer kind of entering your life? Uh, 1998 is when I got that watch. <laughs> did we just become best friends? That was when <laughs> my my first uh, mechanical watch was when my wife and I got married in 1998. It was a, a Tag Heuer 4000. No kids. I, st- I still have it. Yeah, yeah. it's a it's a yeah, great watch. It actually it's 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 pretty relevant too. It's it's a neat watch. Yeah, Tag Heuer brothers. We are. Excellent. So how did you get hooked up with Bremont? For for people, if you know, it's, we've been talking for 20 odd minutes at the beginning of this, I mentioned you were involved in, in military projects for with Bremont. How did that yeah. relationship start? It's kind of a funny story. So I was in New York with my family Christmas time, 2007. And uh, I'm married, uh, been married a long time, 35 years. I got three daughters. They were all going to the Rockettes and my mom and my dad were in New York with us. And I'm like, please, can I not go to the Rockettes and I'll just roam around, look at watch stores in New York. In front of your viewers who've been in New York, it is just watch heaven, you know, from one flagship store to the next. And I went into a store called Kenjo's, which they're not there anymore. They were on 59th Street, but it was really kind of a a guy's watch store. They had a lot of fairly high-end brands, but it wasn't like the stuffy white glove where you walk in and they eyeball you and immediately decide you're not going to buy a watch, so they ignore you. You know, those kind of places in New York. Sure. So I was in Kenju, and I see this one display by itself. It says Bremont, and they had picked two Alaska F-15s uh, as their image. I don't know why. I was like, I've probably flown those jets. And, uh, and they had their three core watches, an Alt-1C, Alt-1Z, and an Alt-1P. And a picture of the two brothers. And, you know, they're good-looking guys. They're standing there next to a sports car, whatever it was they were doing in their image. But I just loved the story. I love the story that these two brothers who are just love mechanical things were bringing this brand to England. And it really kind of resonated with me. So I just kind of found the brand. I don't remember. This was in uh, 2007. So I guess online probably that existed at the time. I, I looked them up and I called Bremont, not knowing how big the company was or anything. And I talked to uh, Nick and Giles' uh, personal uh, assistant, uh, Claire's her name. And I said, hey, I'm an American fighter pilot. I'm a big watch guy. Your watches are kind of expensive, but if you'll send me sell me one at a really good discount, I'll wear it. You know, I'll wear it at the bar. I'll show it off, and they were like, "Yeah, yeah, you know, we'll do that for you." So that's where I got the Alt One uh, Z that I'm wearing now. And one day on a weather day, I snuck out to a hangar. God forbid any of my squadron mates see me doing this. I went out in my flight suit with my helmet. And I set up a, a, a digital <laughs> camera on a tripod because selfies didn't even exist at the time. It, and I went, I ran over on the timer and I kneeled in front of the jet with my watch, you know, the classic watch uh, wrist yes. shot and uh, took that picture. And I sent it to Watch Time magazine. This, so this was in early 08. I remember and, those uh, pictures at the back, back of that. Yeah, um, it's called yeah. FaceTime, I think they call it. And this was, no kidding, the first edition, the June 2008 edition of Watch Time. Uh, the first time they'd ever had that feature in the back, dude, they put that picture as a five by seven in the center space and said, Lieutenant Colonel Rich Nemo Sweeten wears his Bremont next to the F-15 Eagle. And it did not take long for Nick and Giles to discover that, uh, that issue, see that picture. And I think it was Nick reached out to me 
And uh, long story short, he said, hey, you know, Nemo, we think military might like our watches. We think maybe our story resonates with military guys. Our dad was uh, Royal Auxiliary. What do you think? And I said, oh, you want to hear what I think? Let me tell you. Because I had done projects with Breitling and Omega. Um, I had tried to do something with Bell and Ross once and just was never really happy with the experience. I felt like we were kind of, I don't know, you know. I had a guy tell me once at work for Breitling that Breitling looked at military as like charity sales, which whether that's true or not, I don't know. But so I, so I said, hey, here are the things you need to do differently for the military. And we just started down the path of uh, how to make that happen. Uh, you and I talked about the very first squadron watch that Bremont did, the U2 uh, watch. So I came in um, about that time and started talking to Nick about what other airplanes or squadrons might be interested in Bremont. And that's where we started off. So Nick and I came up with the Bremont C-17 watch, which went on to become the uh, uh, World Timer, which is still in their lineup. Uh, Cruiser, who did the U-2 watch, who we had talked about, uh, he actually helped me uh, come up with some of the design. So I got to give him some credit. For, and, wait, uh, I'm going to interrupt for one second. So for people yeah. listening, when when Nemo talks about Cruiser, he's talking about Lieutenant, at the time, Major Alberto Cruz. So Alberto this is a, Cruz, a, a yeah. U2 pilot. Yes. And he's got the the famous imagery, you know, in Vermont at the time and probably still exists if you look probably it up still. online. Some of the most ep- epic photos. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the 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 U2 at very high altitude at mission height, you know, with the the you know, the guy in the exposure suit, you know, the yellow suit, the space helmet, the the, the whole regalia, right? And he's got that, you know, jet black U2 watch on. Yes. Yes, That's absolutely. Cruiser. That is Cruiser. Yeah. And I think he's, if he flies for American now. So I got to give Cruiser a shout out because we were coming up with how do we do a watch for the C-17? And this is the only watch Bremont ever did where we came up with the concept that wasn't initiated by pilots. Every Bremont watch, part of our, uh, our model was that we would never just create a military watch and then try to sell it. It had to be, we had to be approached by pilots in a squadron and what they wanted to do, but kind of to get things rolling, we decided the C-17 was a great airplane to try to design a special watch around. So I brought in a couple of C-17 buddies um, to be the project officers because nobody's going to buy a, a C-17 watch that an F-15 guy created. So uh, so these two buddies of mine were kind of the projos, and we came up with that project. And it's been one of the most successful Remont military pieces we've ever done. There are C-17 guys all over the world that wear that particular watch. So that that was the first watch that we did. Uh, and then I just kind of became an advisor for the brand. I was still active duty, so I couldn't officially work or use my official email with anything that I did with Bremont. So I just advised, we need to do this. We need to do that. This is what's important. These are price points that matter, you know, that mean something to the pilots. And it just grew from there. I, I established all their social media. I created all their Facebook, Twitter, Instagram accounts back when watches didn't really have those accounts. The luxury watch brands were very resistant to social media back when we were doing a lot of the stuff with Bremont. And now everybody's doing it. But uh, but yeah, so I so I ran all their social media, military stuff for a good, geez, almost 10 years. Yeah, that's an amazing thing. I do remember that Globemaster watch launching. That's the one that had kind of the uh, the slightly sort of trapezoidal date window, right? To kind of yeah, yeah. So yeah, it yeah. symbolized it symbolized the heads up display. Was what that yeah. was about. I've you know, just as an aside, that's such a great jet. Like, I mean, if you're gonna fly a heavy and not fly a fighter, I can't imagine flying a, a, a big jet that would be cooler than that. I would 
that would be a pretty rad drop. I would no, not I be, agree. I would, yeah. I would not be upset. And for people listening, like, you know, in the, it, to tie this, the military aviation thing to, to watches, the GMT seems like a natural complication, but for fighters, right? I mean, the reality is, you know, you're working on, on a, a reference time, but you know, for the most part, you're taking off and landing at the same base. It's not like, you know, the, the, the heavies, the tankers and the transport guys that are going from place to place to place. Right. And on a trip, you know, they might go from, you know, someplace in the middle of the United States to Gander, to the UK, yeah, yeah, to, you know, to, uh, uh, Siganella in Italy, to the Middle East, and then back over the course of like three days, absolutely. you know, GMT and having an alternate time zone really matters to those guys in a way that it might not to fighter pilots or helicopter pilots. Exactly. And one thing we did with the C-17 watch, which was cool is, you know, lots of GMT watches have a, uh, you know, a bezel that has all the major, a, a major city in each time zone. So what we did with the C-17 watches, we did a, a, a four-letter ICAO identifier for fields that the C-17 landed at specifically. So all around the dial, instead of, you know, London and Denver and Los Angeles, there was a uh, designator for a C-17 field that they landed at. So, that so was instead kind of, of London, it would be like Mildenhall. Exactly. Something like that. That's awesome. Yeah. that's and But that's the kind of stuff that I remember seeing that Vermont did that nobody else did. I agree. Yeah. In, we, in terms of military projects and we did some pretty cutting edge unique projects and we could talk about some of those things but just using numbers on the dial to be associated with squadrons or making helicopter blades the uh the dials on a second hand um the uh, kc-135 watch that we did the uh, 24-hour hand was the exact colors of the boom you know the green in the middle and then yellow and red as it went out uh, so little things like that that i think pilots uh, really appreciated yeah, they're neat touches that are not just, you know, it's not just like a, a steering wheel stylized rotor or something like that. Right, right. Or just a patch. You know, Breitling was always uh, very particular. You could put a patch in maybe your airplane, but they wouldn't mess with their designs a whole lot. But Bremont was more willing to push the envelope with some of the designs that we did. Now, we had a rule. We would not make what I called a Frankenstein watch, where it was a watch that did not hark back to a retail model. So it was a rule with us that every military watch you could look at and say, oh, that's an, you know, an MB2 or that's an Alt-1Z. You would recognize it, but it would just have military elements that made it stand out and be a little bit different. Yeah. Well, you'd mentioned a second ago, I mean, there, there are some really interesting and kind of uh, exotic things. Are there any projects that you were involved with that stand out as being, you know, the most interesting or most meaningful to you? Probably the C-17, just because I got to deal with Nick uh, directly. You know, Nick and Giles, they're pulled in every single direction. So the really early days where Nick and I were talking together uh, on projects, you know, all the time, it was really fun. Uh, as the brand grew, uh, Catherine Villeneuve is the leader of Bremont Military. She's a, a wonderful lady, a really savvy businesswoman. She took over in England, the military project. So she kind of ran things and I was kind of her advisor and uh, kind of taught her as much as I could about the military. And she's still there. She still runs uh, Fremont Military. So I would say probably the C-17, but I was very involved with the, the B-2 watch, um, the KC-135 watch, the F-22 watch that we did. And one thing that was kind of interesting with Bremont too is uh, the brand sort of started using our military projects, military and special projects, we called it, as sort of like a... Uh, 
don't know if I'd call it research and development, but kind of a testing ground for new things. So like, for example, the B2 watch, which we made all stealth, became the Alt-1B. You know, that was a retail watch that you could buy from Bremont. Well, that started as the B2 watch. Um, the F22 watch, which had an open date window, a little bit IWC-ish, um, but that watch became the U22, which is a retail watch for Bremont. So some people may not realize a lot of watches in the lineup for Bremont were kind of uh, tested as military projects to start. Yeah, I, I want to say that I've I've seen some of that development just having been involved in, um, you know, the fora. And so you'd see people, you know, posting images or talking about their their military watches, meaning, you know, squadron members and things like that. And then you'd see later a through line that looked like a design element on a watch that became commercially available. And yeah. I remember that U22 um, in particular. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, let me ask you this. So, Bremont, I make no, um, I don't, I don't hide the fact that I'm a fanboy. I was an sure. early adopter, you know, and I, I, I sort of feel bad. I don't have any in the collection right now, but that'll change eventually. But I've had multiple, yeah, I so. and I think I, I had MB two number one hundred eighty seven. Nice. And uh, yeah, that was I. That was probably my single greatest mistake was letting that go. That's another. <laughs> that's a story. But, I've got um, number 100, 132, so I was right there with you when they were. Oh first yeah, that's. Out. I mean, that's that's right there. Um, but I, so I love the brand. I love the guys. I think they they draw a lot of really weird kind of undeserved ire. Yeah, but I do. have, you know, Bremont's a, a hobby horse for me. You know, where it's, I personally think it's a very misunderstood brand. How would you describe the company? You know, in in, I I don't even know really how to articulate the question. But as somebody who's been into watches before you got involved with Bremont and, you know, you're not with them anymore, like no. how would you describe that organization? I would, the word that comes to mind is genuine. I th a lot of people, there are Bremont haters out there. It seems like you either, you either love them or you hate them. I don't know why that's kind of the way that that works. But both oh, yeah, and Giles, dude, they are, they are genuine. They love mechanical stuff. They love cars and motorcycles and working in the garage. And they just had this passion for watches. It was truly legit, you know, and you would see a lot of negative. Bremont's just a marketing brand and, you know, they're just using Swiss movements and they're not legit. And, you know, for example, choosing the Bremont brand, you know, talking to Nick and Giles when they were trying to come build this company, they thought about buying just some old name that has been making watches since 18 something. And they said, no, you know, we want to start something real, start something fresh. And probably a lot of your listeners have heard the story about how they, they got the Bremont name. I, I won't go into that, but um, they're just genuine dudes who wanted to bring watchmaking back to England. And for those of your listeners who know what Bremont has done, as far as the wing their big headquarters there, which I've been out to see, I mean, do they are, they are making the cases and a lot of the components right there in England. And I think they've become kind of a, a loved brand of the country of England to see watchmaking come back. Cause you know, Rolex and a lot of watch brands, England was kind of the, uh, the, the pinnacle of watchmaking. And then world war two drove all that industry to Switzerland as Britain joined the war making effort and then it never really came back. So I was always impressed that, you know, Nick and Giles, they could have sold the company. They could have just kept buying uh, Swiss movements, kept the cost down, but instead they went all out investing in equipment and trying to bring watchmaking back to England. So it, it's a, it's a pretty cool story and they are very legit guys uh, who love what they do. 
Yeah, for sure. And Nemo, I'm not going to ask you to speculate or comment on this. I'm going to um, restate a theory of mine because one of the things you mentioned was, you know, how genuine everything is, and you know, there's people that have their their doubts about certain things. Certainly not. It, it, anybody who doubts like the aviation, you know, credibility of those two guys in particular, I mean, cram it with walnuts because those they're, I mean, they're legit. They're the real deal. Um, there's no way that Nick could have pulled the wool over my eyes with my background. He's a, mm-hmm. he's a real, you know, a real enthusiast, a real pilot. He's got a lot of experience. I think the name Bremont is the thing that a lot of people come back to and in my mind, it's like, okay, it could be exactly as they say the story is, or it could be the kind of thing that the person that's discussed is essentially their dad or you know, somebody who is very much like their dad and you sure. want to pay homage to the dad right. um, and you cannot trademark the name English. And <laughs> it's, it, you know, it has no marketing cachet whatsoever. And so, you know, okay, if there's a fudge story about that, I, I can live with that. Or maybe it's, maybe there's not, you know, maybe it's, that's a hundred percent legit. But as far as the actual aviation bona fides go, you know, I'm sure you'd agree. Um, I would say they're a lot more legit than I'll just say it like a Bell and Ross. Uh, I don't, I don't know anybody at Breitling, uh, who has that kind of background for real. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree with you 100%. They are, they are true pilots. In fact, when I went out to England just this last May, kind of my uh, farewell visit, if you will, Nick and I took the Broussard, 1953, a Max Holtz Broussard, and flew it down to Duxford. So I poked around there for a while and then flew it back to Henley. And uh, it was just, it was so great to just be sitting there in the cockpit with Nick as we flew over the English countryside. Uh, and he, he lives and breathes aviation on top of all of his other interests. I would love to fly that thing. For people who don't know, imagine a uh, kind of an older, you know, tail dragger, high wing airplane, uh, radial engine, not yeah. super huge, but it's kind of like a, um, if, if there was such a thing as like a flying Humvee, this is, that's kind of what it is. It's, you know, or yeah, maybe like yeah. a, a, a family car. <laughs> yeah. It's a and, good analogy. I think there's six seats back there. Uh, yeah, exactly. Behind, exactly. Behind it's, it, it looks like it's an amazing aircraft. I would love to have it. It probably right up there for me, like as an emotional favorite as like a, a 337, like a Skymaster. Yeah. Yeah. It was fun to fly. There's still an old, uh, uh, fitting up on the, on the dash, uh, that holds a pipe. So when you fly that, the pipe is still sitting, uh, in that holder. That's incredible. Yeah. So if you, you, it, the word charming and aviation, if you put them next to each other and you look it up in the dictionary, that's the airplane you'd Probably see. So. Yeah, it's a good machine. That's, that's super cool. Well, hey, um, Bremont aside, what you know? What are your current watch interests? Like, do you have any areas of focus in your collecting? Uh, you know, I like watches with a story. Um, so some of the first watches I collected, for example, the Omega Speedmaster. Uh, I wanted it to have a plastic crystal. I didn't want an open case back. I wanted it to be a, to be a legitimate uh, Speedmaster. So that was one of the first. Uh, my Omega Seamaster is just your classic 300-meter diver, blue face, just classic. Uh, Tag Heuer, blue face Nemo, Monaco. Have, I'm going to interrupt for a sec. Do you have the one sure. with the sword hands, the like the, the 2254 style? I know that's getting nerdy. but Yeah, that's know, getting the baby. The one with the, skele- the skeletonized hands. No, I don't think so. I think it's just a very, very classic, basic Speedmaster, black face. Um, oh, no, I'm sorry. I meant that you're Seamaster. 
Oh yeah, it does have the the skeleton hands. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Yeah, it Got does. it. Yeah. Um, Tag Heuer, Blueface Monaco uh, means a lot to me. I've got one of the old Tag Heuer uh, automatic pilot watches. They made it both in a quartz and an automatic version. They're pretty hard to find. Nineteen eighty three ish. Which one reason I really like that watch is it's a, it's kind of a Frankenstein watch. Tag had just bought Hoyer back at that time, and I think they were using up their old parts. So the watch face says Tag Hoyer, but the case back, the crown, and the strap all say Hoyer, but by itself. So uh, they were they were just using up parts back at that point. So I like watches with a story. Um, you know, for all of my time with Bremont, I don't think I I bought any other brand. I probably have twelve Bremonts or something. Probably fifty percent of them are military versions, and the other are just retail versions that I that I like. But most recently, I've been getting into vintage watches quite a bit more. I just bought an Omega Geneve uh, when I was over visiting my son-in-law in Sicily. Um, I found a nineteen fifty Volcane Cricket uh, with the mechanical alarm. I absolutely love that watch. Currently, I'm searching for a Zodiac aerospace jet, which was kind of like the old Glycine Airman, where the hand it goes, you know, 24 hours, it goes around one time, right? It doesn't hit 12 and then come around again. It's 24 hours uh, on the dial. So I, I've been having a lot of fun with vintage watches. Leaving Bremont kind of opened me up. It's kind of like I, I, I got divorced and now I'm, I'm playing the field. It's <laughs> kind of what it feels like. I'm, I'm enjoying watches and uh, like where before I was just kind of a Bremont guy and that was it. So. Well, I've seen that picture of your uh, your cricket. That's a really cool, clean example. What a cool watch! I know yeah, a guy really who is. might be able to help you find that Zodiac. Oh, then yeah. After after we're done, you you put me in touch because I'm searching. Well, now you know him too. But oh, Mike. He, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he. Uh, I. I. I don't know that he could put his hands on one, but I think he's you know over the past year with that brand is starting to more and more people are coming out of the woodwork bringing really cool old stuff to him. Yeah, Zodiac and, has a know, good story. It's a fun, fun the, brand. You know what? It it really is. I think it's still undiscovered country in the um, the uh, vintage arena, uh -huh. and you know a lot of people have not. It's not polluted. I don't think there's a ton of like fakes out there and frankens, and just because it right. hasn't taken off, it's right. not a it's not a hype thing yet. And I think you know for somebody interested. It'd be a great time to to get a few of these older watches. They're really cool, and like you say, they're very legit. Well, even too that their military history. They did their Super Sea Wolf was a uh, a diver watch for the military. It has a, they've got some good military history. Yeah, I saw one of those original Super Sea Wolves about two weeks ago, three weeks ago at a get together here in Southern California, and it's a really neat piece. Yeah, big you know, big watch too for that time. Yeah, it it really goes head to head with something like a uh, you know the Jaeger Lecoultre. Maybe it was just Lecoultre at the time. But they had, you know, something kind of similar. Right. You hold those two things together, and there's nothing to separate them except a massive delta in price. Right, exactly. You know, and in, in in favor of the uh, the zodiac. So, well, I tell you, vintage watches have become. Yeah, you know, I, I miss the days of original eBay where it was just a big garage sale and people didn't always know what they were selling. You could find good deals. Seems like so many vintage watches now are people know what they're worth and then they price them even higher. You know, and a, a Super Seawolf is probably fifteen hundred, two thousand bucks, or just an average example. Whereas, probably ten years ago, you could have picked one up for a couple hundred bucks. I was in a uh, a store here locally in Pasadena yesterday, like on my lunch break. Popped in, and it's a, um, a the guy is a clock repairer, and super cool guy, and his dad, 
and we, we were going through, he was showing me some stuff that he, you know, picked up recently and it's all, you know, old vintage stuff that he hasn't even had a chance to catalog. It's just stuff that came in and he's like, okay, I got this. I got this. I haven't looked at it. I haven't taken it apart. Right. We, we opened up this, um, this intriguing looking Hamilton, you know, like uh, a kind of a two register top and bottom. I think right. I saw that. I think you, you put a picture. Yeah, of it. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, oh, you know, that that looks amazing. What is this? I mean, I think I've seen something like it before. I, I got a bunch of answers on that, which is cool. But he didn't know either. And I'm really kind of bummed because the information that started flowing back in, you know, I kind of copied him on it. Like, let's well, let's find out. And, right. you know, I've seen some of the prices on these things are insane. It's like, oh man, I wish I'd have just offered to take it off his hands right then and there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> David, no if you're listening. <laughs> Well, dude, it is hard to find good watch buying stories anymore. You know, it's not like a, you go to an estate sale and there's an old Rolex sitting there that they just want to get rid of. My, I'll sidetrack a little bit to my favorite watch buying story where you just stumble on something. Is I was up in the mountains in a little town called Fairplay. It's up south of Breckenridge, and we were just in an old fashioned antique store. It wasn't about watches. It was just about old stuff. And I see this little silver faced watch down at the bottom of the case. And I say, Hey, you know, can I take a look at that? They pull it out and it says Vulcane, which I immediately recognize. And I'm like, wow. So I wind it and it seems to be taking good time. And I'm getting kind of excited because I found this cool watch. And I said, how much you want for this old watch? And she, and I'm trying to hide my excitement, right? Because you don't want to act like you just found this gem. And now you say how much. So I yeah. kept my I kept my poker face. And she goes, Oh, I don't know, like $7. And I went with without missing beat, I bet how about would you take five? And she goes, Yeah, yeah, we'll take five. So I went home and I was, I'm on the internet trying to find out when this watch was made and it's probably a 1950s uh just a wind up volcano mechanical watch but my god it keeps perfect time the original leather strap it's one of my favorite watches and it's maybe worth i don't know a hundred dollars maybe on ebay 100 to 200 bucks but just the fact that you find it somewhere th those kind of experiences they don't happen much anymore in the watch oh world. i don't know man i think you should go look at eric Wynn's website i want to say he's a big volcano cricket guy you know really? he has the yeah yeah and i you know, your watch is, if it works and it's as clean as it is, it's probably worth a few bucks more than you'd, you'd even you'd think. Did you hear the story, by the way, just as an aside, but Jason Heaton. So this yeah, is, I know Jason. You know, yep. Uh, he recently acquired, I don't know what he paid for it. Um, and I won't ask, but the person that he got it from was like a, a, you know, a personal friend or an acquaintance who's not a watch person found in like a you know, secondhand thrift store type thing and an AOPA dialed 806 all original that he bought for 50 cents. <laughs> wow, that is good. It's so, kind of like the, the barn find, right? The car that's been sitting in a barn for Yeah, years. I'm like, oh my God, I need to have an experience like that. That's incredible. Yeah, they're harder and harder to find, but I get, I'm sure they're still out there. Yeah, well, I'll uh, you tell me on uh, after the you know we're done with this what you're looking for and I'll I'll start perusing because I found two new uh, new to me, you know places here in Southern California and they've got some pretty good inventory. Every everything is you know reasonably priced, but nothing is bargain priced. How about that? But right. there's still a well, lot of neat stuff. I was actually flying with a captain the other day and uh, big watch guy. I look over, he's got a big watch on. It's a glycine. So we start talking watches, and he's just a watch fanatic. So he said Japan is the place to find vintage watches. They take it very seriously. Told me some shops to go to. So that's probably my next quest is to make it over there. 
Well, we'll have to, to hook up before you take that trip and we'll, I'll give you a shopping list or something. Cause I yeah. hear the same thing. I have a couple of, of good friends in our community here in Southern California, and these are fairly well-heeled guys. And they, they do that trip from time to time and they find some great stuff and they say, yeah, the, the Japanese just are very serious about their watch collecting and they just take care of the watches. Yeah. So there's just a, a huge trove of things that are out there that basically are like sock, sock drawer speed masters and, you know, Rolex that, you know, are just basically perfect, yeah, um, yeah. you know, 20, 30, 40 years old, a lot of good neo vintage stuff too. Yeah. That's what I've heard. So I'll have to check that out. These days. Right on. Well, Nemo, we've been talking for close to an hour and we haven't even really talked about your time flying the Eagle yet. I got nerd Eagle questions yet. Um, how would you describe the Eagle like strengths and weaknesses? What was, what was kind of the best thing about it, you know, and, and any weaknesses? Uh, well, obviously we called it the king of air to air. Um, I was lucky enough to fly it when we still flew iron loads, uh, with the aim seven and aim nines. That was it. Uh, the Amram came along while I was flying the jets, I guess it was, it was already there, but it was a kind of a new missile. Um, I, you know, I tell you what, a four ship or an eight ship of Eagles with all radars pointing, uh, down range were just unstoppable. And, uh, the F 15 C we were air to air only. Right. So we flew basic fighter maneuvers, um, uh, BBR shooting missiles, uh, killing things. And, uh, we were very good at what we did. And uh, I think that's the thing I was most proud of, that we could take a four-ship Eagles or an eight-ship and really just about shoot down any airplanes in the world that could come at us. And it's still an excellent jet. And it's been upgraded even since I've flown it. With uh, you know, We had the old APG-63 radar, which was just clunking back and forth. You know, had a limited uh, search volume out at range. But now with the, you know, the ESA radars and the Jehemix helmets, I mean, that thing is, is still a beast. It's just not stealthy, right? And I think the reason the Air Force wants to buy more is, I, I call them, I'm not making this up, but they're kind of missile trucks. You know, you load up the Eagles with all kinds of missiles, let the F-22s and the 35s go in and do their thing first with their stealth. And then once that threat is sort of gone, the Eagles can come in and just load it with missiles and clean up. I assume that's kind of what we're doing with that. But I've been out of the Eagle for quite a while, so you start to lose touch a little bit with what's going on. Well, so did you, I don't think we touched on this. So you, you know, you mentioned your time at Tyndall, but you also said you were in Massachusetts. Were you in the guard or a reserve squadron up there? Yeah, I stayed with the guard. Why they hired a California boy? I don't know. Cause the guard can be, as you probably know, it's all about sometimes who you know, and are you part of the family and that kind of thing. But I was at Tyndall when 9-11 hit and I was actually getting out of the air force was going to go do the airline thing. Uh, I figured I'd give it a try. And it became very apparent after 9-11 that, that the whole airline industry was going to have a really hard time for a while. So uh, instead of staying active duty, I started calling guard units. And I got a call from a buddy there on Cape Cod. It was Otis Air National Guard Base on Cape Cod is where we flew Eagles. And we, we sat alert. Those were the Eagles that uh, took off and were yep. over New York. Two good buddies of mine watched the towers uh, fall above looking down uh, some amazing stories from, from those two guys. So I got hired uh, at, at Otis and flew there uh, for, geez, from, uh, what would it be, 2002 until the Eagles left in 2008, 2009. I, I'd be curious. This is just, so I'm, I'm not a New Yorker. I don't claim any kind of like personal experience related to 9-11, but by coincidence, I was um, in suburban Newark for the better part of a month. Uh -huh. right uh when that happened 
and uh you know just for for a, a work thing and you know that it was a, a terrible event obviously but um where i was was underneath or relatively you know underneath one of the lines of approach for one of the runways at newark i guess you know or or at least you know somewhere fairly close so when you go out and i mean it was like people say it was an incredibly gorgeous day in the northeast that day and uh within about an hour or two you know, the only thing you could hear, I mean, everything was completely silent. Everything had ground to a standstill. There were, you know, by that time, you know, maybe midday, most of the air traffic had either, you know, landed or gone to it, you know, whatever divert field they were supposed to go to. And the only thing I could, I could see and hear standing outside, you know, for people who don't know, I mean, military aircraft, the jets tend to be loud, mm-hmm. you know, quite a bit louder than, you know, commercial aircraft. And if you, if you don't know the difference, you'll hear the difference. Um, when, when you hear like a, a fighter mm-hmm. and just up in the, you know, beautiful blue sky that day, you know, overhead, I could see a, a two ship, you know, probably three quarter mile spread of F-15s just yeah. Yeah, that was along, us. probably, probably about 18 or 20,000 feet. I've heard that story a lot from people who, uh, I remember the Howard the Stern only show at hear. the time. Yeah, they were screaming, oh, my God, there's F-15s over the city. And, uh, uh, yeah, so that was uh, uh, Duff and Nasty, two pilots. Uh, Nasty has actually passed away, so but Duff's still around. Uh, those are the two guys over New York. Um, it's an amazing story. I won't try to tell their story. You can go find their story you know, out there on the Internet or videos and so forth. But, yeah, they watched the towers fall from above. And to hear Duff tell it, he said it was surreal. It's like I'd, I can't grasp what I'm watching right now as the tower, you know, fades away from me in, into the earth. Um, so we, we kept flying caps over New York for the next, cause I got there after nine 11, I've got hours over New York. We would have a block of airspace, two Eagles and a tanker. And you could still look down and see the white smoke coming from the, the, you know, the, where the towers fell, which is still so hot you know, underneath. And, uh, yeah, we did that for a long time. And, uh, yeah, all yeah, flying tough. came to a stop. The Eagles and fighters were the only things flying over the United States for a while. Yeah. Yeah. Just uh anyway, that was just kind of my my personal touchstone to that. I've I saw those Eagles flying that yeah. cap that day. I've heard that story before. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure a lot of people did. Um, is there anything that you think is its equal in BVR? I mean, I guess now, you know, oh, how about 22. not? The F-22 is the same, I call it quantum leap, that the Eagle was to the F-4. So the F-15 was just technology like you couldn't believe, maneuverability, power that you couldn't believe. Uh, an F-15 could just go out and school an F-4. And it is about that same jump, F-15 to F-22. The F-22 with vector thrust is just a, an air-to-air monster. In fact, it's, it, I think it's been so successful. I think the Air Force sometimes says, oh, we, we should have bought more of those things. Uh, but believe it or not, those guys, they still don't wear a special helmet. They've got a tremendous radar and they're stealth. Uh, but it's nothing like the F-35 where they're wearing a you know million dollar helmet where you can look through down below your feet and see the earth. Those guys are flying regular old helmets and shooting AMRAMs and uh, just doing an amazing job. The F-22 is something else to see. What's the deal with that? I mean, I'd always wondered, and now we're really getting like nerdy, but you know, the way that that canopy in the F-22 is kind of like almost, you know, when you look at it from the front, it's got this almost like a pyramidal kind of a plan form view. Like, is there room for a guy or a gal underneath that canopy to have the the big helmet? Or is it just the fact that there's nothing to cue because there's no exposed 
seeker head for a missile for it to look at. So why why have the helmet? You know, yeah, you know, I'm not sure why they haven't invested in that. I just had an F-22 pilot going through A320 training, and we were talking a little bit about the F-22. I think it's just such a capable machine and can shoot stuff down BVR with such ease. It's got that ESA radar that sees everything from 50,000 feet to the surface. I just don't know that they need it, you know, to be honest. Um, the F-35 yeah. is kind of a all-purpose. That thing is a, a data-collecting and data-spewing machine, um, whereas the F-22 is still, despite all its technology, is just kind of still your your air-to-air, you know, beast that goes out there and does the exact same thing the Eagle did, but better. Um, when I flew for Draken, uh, I was at Nellis, and I would go out and get to merge with F-22s and F-35s. And still, with all my years of flying and flying the Eagle, I would look across the turn circle and just go, oh, my God, look at that thing. You know, uh, the F-22 or the F-35 with the gold canopy. In fact, our F-22 watch was the first uh, Bremont that had a gold side barrel. A lot of people don't realize that that gold barrel was a shout out to the canopy, the gold colored canopy. Yeah, that was, I remember that design. That was super cool. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm picturing you when you flew with Draken, did you, were you in a fours or I what flew that? I flew the L one fifty nine uh, honey okay. badger affectionately called the honey badger. I can just imagine, like you said, being on the opposite side of the circle and you're like, I, Oh God, I am the baby seal. I'm about to get clubbed. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, we were, we, the nice thing about Draken is we could put up a lot of airplanes and we had a really good, you know, it wasn't often that we would maintenance cancel. So the F-22s and even the F-35s liked having us there, but we're a barely a fourth generation fighter. And at Nellis, they need peer fifth gen type of adversaries. So they're putting up an F-35 aggressor squadron and the F-16 still fly aggressor. Draken's more geared towards basic training. We do a lot of stuff for, uh, the, uh, training bases, guys going through training that just need some targets out there to shoot and sorts and that kind of thing. So, uh, so yeah, still a lot of good friends at Drock and it'd be nice to still be doing it, but I'm getting a little too old. My wife doesn't approve of flying fighters at my age, so I'm done. Yeah. Understood. Understood. Um, do you have any good, like what's the gnarly, ex- gnarliest experience in the jet? Anything really weird or, or hair on fire kind of stuff? Um, like, no you know, shit, there I was. Yeah. You know, the F-15, is, we called it BFM, basic fighter maneuvers. And that thing would pull, no kidding, 9Gs. You'd do a break turn. Uh, we'd do offensive and defensive setups. And if you were the defender out a mile in front of another F-15, putting on a 9G break turn, we're literally, I mean, you, you can't imagine what 9Gs feels like. And, and it's not sustainable, right? It, the energy and the airspeed would bleed off quickly. Uh, but you could easily get in a rate fight in the Eagle at 6G sustained and staying at 6Gs, just rating around the turn circle. And I remember times just going, this jet is just kicking my butt, man. You had to you had to kind of be in shape and kind of lift weights and do your best to be able to, to survive in that environment because it was really tough. Um, so I loved BFM. I loved ACM, which was a two-ship versus a single uh, another single adversary. And then, uh, I don't know, I guess one time I was on, I was on NVGs, night vision goggles, and I, uh, I went into what we call the, the notch trying to defeat a missile and I, I lost track. I went into some clouds and I lost track of my, uh, basic attitude. And the next thing you know, I hear kind of a wind rush and I look down and I see a, an ADI full of black and I realized, holy shit, to excuse the language, I, I'm not real sure how close I am to the water and I am out of control pointing downhill and that kind of opened my eyes to uh 
how dangerous that flying can be sometimes. And of course, I, I applied you know, your basic recovery procedures and got the airplane flying again. But you don't realize how quickly things can go bad when you're moving that fast and stuff's going on, especially at night. Yeah, yeah. You, it's very easy to yeah lose uh, lose like visual awareness of you know oh, yeah. where you are, but also your attitude. And you can't trust how things feel, right? Because that's not always what's really going on. Your seat of the pants. Yeah, yeah. So that so that's why the one time in the Eagle, I went, oh my God, I, I could have died right there maybe, but yeah, I went on to fly another day. Well, the Eagle brings you home. It seems like it's like the, the B-17 of fighters. It, it, if you know about aerodynamics and just, you know, I'm not an engineer, but uh, you can look at that thing and say like, okay, this, this looks like a very honest wing. This looks yeah. like a very honest empennage. There's a lot of rudders, or not rudder, but like, you know, a uh, uh, vertical surface here to, you know, to work with. And it, it, it seems like it would be a phenomenal airplane you mentioned. So again, for the listeners, you use that six G number. I'd always heard that the, the major sort of design criteria was to build in, basically make the airplane, whatever you need to make the airplane so that at height six G's sustained you know, at good speed without bleeding a lot of energy. That was like one of the main, you know, criteria to design, you know, in the design of the airplane. Yeah, yeah and, it could be. And it's hard to believe that design was, you know, 1970s. It's uh, amazing. How yeah, it's just, it's a, a brute force. Like the other airplanes can turn harder, but not for long. And, you know, the idea that you can just stay at 60s and like, like, to, for people who don't know, like to rate when Nemo refers to rating, and correct me if I'm wrong. But essentially, you're tail chasing another aircraft around the same circle. But exactly. I guess te- technically they call that two circle, right? But well, two know, circle can align as a one circle. So you could have two jets on the same racetrack, if you will, where the geometry is just literally a turn circle. And now it becomes yeah. a cat and mouse game of who can sustain a G and a, a rate that's faster than the other jet. Right? You're slowly going to work your way around that that uh, circle until you're in a position to shoot something. Yes. And that's like the classic thing where, you know, your, your nose is trying to align to the other, the other aircrafts, you know, rear aspect that's, it's, it's back end versus the, you know, a one circle, right. Where you're essentially, you're racing around to get your nose on his nose before he does. Right. Right. A one circle flight bleeds down energy real fast. And then you're both out of energy trying to. Yeah. So that's the ability to just stay on, on 6G is what makes it so amazing. And, and just to, come around and like, okay, I got you. Here's, yeah. but that was, a, pain, that was a, a painful way to fight. And it, 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 I'd love uh, fighting the Hornet because the Hornet liked to get slow. And as an Eagle guy, we like to stay fast. So some of those fights became a big cat and mouse. I don't know if that's the right analogy, but the Hornet would want to cash in all their energy and point at you. And in the Eagle, you'd want to just pull into him and put some flares out to defeat the missile, but then stay fast. So some of the fights with different uh, types of fighters were always fun. Every Hornet pilot says they, oh yeah, we, we, we could defeat the, the F-15. No problem. No problem. I'm like, yeah, yeah but did yeah, you though? Right. Did you though? <laughs> well, you know what, what took a lot of the fun out of it is, um, you know, back in the old days, shooting a heater, uh, an AIM-9, uh, you, you know, it had to be somewhat tail aspect. There had to be a good heat source. Some of the new, you know, the AIM-9X and you're shooting, looking through the helmet, queuing up a shot, looking through your helmet visor. Some of those missiles are just impossible to defeat, you know? So it's not quite as fun as it used to be when, you know, somebody can just look across a circle and shoot a 9X at you and there's literally nothing you can do. Yeah. 
interesting stuff. Well, I could talk about this all the time because I'm like, you know, the total, this is my Walter Mitty experience. Like, oh, you know, I'd, I'd love to have done that for real life. Um, are you following F15 EX? Not, not really. I, I see the okay. stuff that's just in the news. Yeah. So it, it's exciting to see Eagles coming off the assembly line. But uh, I don't like the fact that they're all two seaters. The C model guys were all big uh, single seat. You know, there, there were some, the D model was a two seater for the F-15, but uh, yeah, we didn't ever want to fly the two seater, the family model, as we called it. Yeah. The, the station wagon. I don't yeah. know. I, um, I, I, I think they are, they're all super neat jets. I think what is it? The F-15E had originally had the, the fancy radar. Uh, I think the APG 70 or something, they had a, a little bit okay. so, better radar coming off. But uh, but a lot of the Eagles now have ESA radars. They're all with the guard. These are really capable jets, uh, even in their old age. Yeah, I'd love to have, we have a, a guard squadron up in Fresno. And I think they're getting some of those jets too. Yeah, yeah, I know some of the Fresno guys. I looked at trying to go out there when I was trying to find something to do. Right on. All right, well, how did you get your call sign? What is the story with Nemo? <laughs> Okay. Uh, I don't want to bore, bore your listeners. That part of the Eagle uh, community was your call sign party, right? So you'd show up at an operational squadron and uh, you'd get some silly name. I think at Alaska, you were butt plug one, butt plug two. We didn't have call signs. <laughs> and then you had to wait until you went to, uh, on a deployment somewhere to get a naming, have a naming ceremony. So we took our jets from Alaska down to Nellis and, um, when you're getting named, the last thing you want is to be the last guy in the naming because, pretty soon people are drunk out of their minds and you're getting named by people that are completely out of control and not their normal selves anymore. So I was probably, there were maybe two or three of us getting named and I'd had a few too many drinks and I'm on my knees and broken glass in a hangar at Nellis. And uh, the opso gets up there and starts telling a story about me. And he says, you know, Rich comes in here, he's flying the Eagle, you know, he's not, he's not God's gift to the jet, but he's not doing stupid stuff either. And I was, you know, I was a fake, I was a captain when I went to the Eagle. So I knew kind of the basics, you know, I, I wasn't necessarily naturally gifted Eagle driver, like I've seen uh, other guys, but I, you know, I did my thing and there weren't a lot of stories to tell about me because usually call signs come from stories. You did something stupid or, or whatever. So the joke was, uh, he's just kind of plugging through. We don't have any good stories. This guy's got no name. And Nemo is Greek. If you, you know, Captain Nemo of the Nautilus um, is a, a Greek or Latin for anonymous. No name is what Nemo means. So I, I got named Nemo because they didn't have a lot of good stories on me. I was Nemo with, uh, with no name. So that's, that's what it is. There's, and one reason I started to like Nemo over time is that there are lots of, heaters and uh, bam bams and uh Ma- you know i guess not maverick per se but there's some call signs that just get recycled over and over again nemo there's one other nemo in the air force and i actually know him and uh, we're the only two so nemo was kind of a unique call sign that didn't get reused well it sounds cool on the radio you understand it yeah, yeah, I've, I've I've come to like Nemo, and I was I was Nemo at Bremont with my email, and uh, Nick and Giles call me Nemo, so it still kind of sticks in some areas. That's good stuff. Okay, so my next question is, and this will be easy or or not, is that the real story? Yeah, that is that is no okay. kidding, legit story. The funny part is when the Disney movie came out, and I was in the squadron in uh, Massachusetts, and one of the one Charlie Oscar enlisted folks, a young woman comes up, she says. 
Nemo, have you seen the new Disney movie? And I was like, oh my God, this can't be good. So yeah, from that point on, Disney had destroyed my call sign. Right on, right on. Well, I, I know just from experience that a lot of folks, um, you know, they have a, a PG version of how they got their name. Oh yeah. And a lot of names yeah, are uh, acronyms, you, you know, yeah, there's, there's, or something, you know, no, that's, that's yeah. the story. That's, that's legit. Yeah. I want to say there was somebody, uh, who's, this was a guy in the Marine Corps and he was a helicopter pilot and it was like Nuna. And it, it stands for New River's Ugliest Naval Aviator. Yeah, the Navy loves that stuff. The Navy does a lot yeah, of that stuff. Yeah. Well, Lamb Chop is a good one. Little Angry Man Boy Can't Handle Our Program. <laughs> yeah, um, and so, there, are, there are Air Force call signs that are like that as well. But I think the Navy uh, tends to play that up more than we do. Exactly. Right on. Well, hey, we are coming up, Colonel, on about an hour and 15 minutes, which is kind of our limit. I could easily go like another 30 minutes talking about like, you know, where the, the pointy end of the jet goes and, sure. and what do you what do you think is better if is the S S twenty or SU twenty seven is that the the pacing threat now and and all that stuff. Um but we'll save that for the next conversation. I have a feeling we may talk again. This has yeah, been great. I would love to. i like I, I told you prior, I'm married and have three daughters, so it's not too often I get to sit around and uh talk guy stuff, whether it's watches or jets or what have you. No, totally. This is my therapy as well. Well, sir, it's been a long time coming. I'm really happy we finally got to chat. You're a, uh, you're a great dude, a great tour, And I think people are going to like this episode a lot. There's a lot of aviation nerds and military nerds, and certainly a lot of watch nerds that listen to this. Um, and I'm probably, you know, chief among them. This is uh this is great, good storytelling, and it's good to have a drink with you. Dude, I really appreciate you having me. It's been fun talking to you. And I'm gonna I, I wasn't too familiar with the podcast, but I'm gonna go back and start listening to your previous episodes. So you got a you got a new fan as well. Awesome. Well, thanks very much. It's been great. Um, I am going to suggest that we sign off now, but I will salute you here. Cheers salute. to you. Cheers, man. Fly fight win. That's right. All right, Matt. Take care. Take care. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Don't forget to rate us on your podcast platform of choice. It really does help. You can find us on Instagram at Spirit of Time Podcast and contact us at Spirit of Time Podcast at gmail.com. As always, please drink responsibly. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye.